Let's do it. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. I was once described as the manager, the mentor, and the visionary who went to the theater with an unfocused dilettante and raised the curtain on a superstar. Hello and welcome to episode 21 in our series exploring the history of Main Man, the groundbreaking management rights company that completely transformed the business side of rock and roll in the 70s, becoming synonymous with the decadence, extravagance and indulgences that are now part of rock folklore. He asked us to do the album, so we went in and did the album, and we thought after that, that was it, we'd all go trooping off back to Hull. And of course we didn't. We got persuaded to stay down in London and uh, then go on and do Ziggy. Main Man was formed by entrepreneur and impresario Tony DeFries, who worked with a diverse range of clients that included Amanda Lear, Lou Reed, Mick Ronson, John Mellencamp, Mott the Hoople, Mick Ralphs, Iggy Pop and David Bowie. I would often buy books that were far above my head, but as long as one that I could put them in my pocket so the title would show, when I was on the subway, you know, I could look deep and there would be, you know, something by Ferlinghetti in the raincoat pocket, you know. But actually, these things kind of made their mark because I found out that I'd actually end up reading them and then I would be exploring territory that I never thought I could get into. In this episode, we're marking the 50th anniversary of David's first visit to America in January 1971, which was a short tour to promote the release of The Man Who Sold the World album. The visit was instigated by Mercury Records' American publicist, Ron Oberman, who was convinced of David's potential and hoped that a promo tour would help raise his profile in the US. Ron was one of the only people at Mercury at the time that liked Bowie and heard potential in his music, a feeling that was shared by Ron's brother Michael, who was a music writer at the Washington Star newspaper. Michael and Ron had been fans of David's music since they first heard Space Oddity in 1969. Michael wrote hundreds of reviews in the late 60s and early 70s, interviewing some of the biggest names in rock at the time, and he's just published a memoir titled Fast Forward, Play, Rewind, which relives his rock and roll adventures. To find out how that historic Bowie visit came about and what David got up to, I caught up with Michael down the line at home in Columbia, Maryland. Michael, could we start with you telling us how you came to get this fantastic job writing about all these great rock and roll stars back in the day? I'm going to go back to when I was 16 years old and my brother was a young journalist at the Washington Star. He was still in journalism school at the University of Maryland and I was in high school and he got me a job as a copy boy. So on weekends and summer vacations, I would work at the Washington Star. It was an exciting job for a 16 year old being in the newsroom of a major newspaper. And then in February of 1964, Ron took over a column called Top Tunes. Uh, the previous writer had focused mainly on straight ahead pop, Dara's Day, Peggy Lee, etc. Ron took it over just at the right time. February of 1964 is when the Beatles came to the United States and Ron was there. Ron took me to the Beatles' first concert he went backstage and interviewed them. It was utterly exciting. I had just watched them on the Ed Sullivan show, which they did right before they took the train to Washington, D.C. for their first show. And I thought to myself, what a lucky guy my brother is. 
not only is he interviewing the Beatles, he's meeting some of the most beautiful women in the world because of this job. I want that gig someday. Well, if we fast forward to 1967, and I was 19 years old in journalism school at the University of Maryland, Ron was still writing the column, but he got an offer to work for Mercury Records in Chicago. The first offer was as assistant director of publicity, and he accepted it. And I went to the entertainment editor. Her name was Fifi Gorska. I said, Fifi, I want to write the column, Top Tunes. She said, Michael, you're 19 years old. You're still in journalism school. We have reporters here who have master's degrees in journalism. They want to write the column. And I reminded her that my brother was 20 when he started writing it and was still in journalism school. So she said, okay, write three and we'll see how it goes. I wrote three and that three turned into 300. It was a six year run, a weekly column. I probably in that six year period did 500 interviews, 300 of which were good enough to publish. So when was the first time that you heard about this up and coming new artist, David Bowie? It was 1969, and my brother had moved from assistant director of publicity at Mercury to director of publicity at Mercury. And, of course, it was the directors of publicity at record companies that were always in touch with me to interview their groups. And who was I the closest to? My brother. And Ron said, you've got to hear David Bowie. And he sent me Space Oddity. And by the way, at that time, I was also subscribing to NME and Melody Maker and was very aware of the British scene. And I thought Space Oddity was great. So Ron arranged a phone call between David and I in 1969. It wasn't very lengthy. I was able to ask him a few questions and put together a column in 1969 on David. So that was my, my first real knowledge. And that's when I did my due diligence to find out that he was really David Jones and why he changed his name, etc. And little did I know in 1969 that two years later, David would be coming to Silver Spring, Maryland, where I lived. In that piece that you wrote about David, you also mentioned the legendary Stardust Cowboy, now famous because he was an inspiration for David both as a performer and also because his name provided David with an important Ziggy connection. How did you know about LSC at the time? Well, I wrote the piece on legendary Stardust Cowboy because, once again, he was a Mercury artist. My brother had sent me the record Paralyzed. And on first listen, I thought, you know, I don't know about writing about this guy. But then... He came to Washington to appear on a show called Wingding, which was a, a one-hour kind of after-school TV show local to Washington, D.C. and Maryland and Virginia. And I thought, well, he's here. I'll go hear him in person, hang with him and interview him. And I did. And, you know, for those people who have never heard Paralyzed, I would really suggest maybe going on YouTube and looking him up. And in particular, his performance on the Rowan Martin show will give you an idea of how crazed he was. So at that point, he was more or less a novelty act, but a novelty act that was going on television. Rowan and Martin was national television, etc. And I had interviewed him. 
Once again, I had no idea at that time that in 1971 there would be particular relevance between Stardust Cowboy and David Bowie. You mentioned you were subscribing to Melody Maker and NME, so you would have seen some of the early stories about David and the accompanying photographs. What were your first impressions of him? I think the first picture I ever saw of David, he had uh, kind of curly hair, and it was more like a mop top of curly hair, and I didn't think much of it. I thought that he had star quality as soon as I heard Space Oddity, but you have to realize that as a music journalist at the time, there was so much going on. David Bowie in 1969 was one very small part of a scene that for me was the Grateful Dead, the Jefferson Airplane, the Doors, etc. The relevance that David had for me didn't really come until The Man Who Sold the World came out. When the album was first delivered to Mercury in the US, there was practically no interest at all. What are your memories of the reaction to the album at the time? Well, I have to look at it as back in those days, there were 13 or 14 major labels. Mercury did not have a great reputation as an LP purveyor. They had a lot of hit singles out. 98.6 by Keith, Pretty Ballerina by The Left Bank, etc., So whatever Mercury thought of an artist, I didn't think much of what they thought. It was, let me hear them. If I like them, I'll write about them. And I thought at the time, by the time of 1971, I thought David hadn't gotten his just due in America and was very excited when my brother told me that he was coming, that Ron was bringing him over. Now, I must say that Ron had met David first in 1969 in the Mercury offices in London. So they knew each other. And it was very exciting to have David come and not only visit with my parents. And my parents had had several acts come through their living room because before Ron worked for Mercury Records, he lived at home with my parents. So some of the interviews happened in my parents' house. I remember one British group that had walked through snow and they had dye on the bottom of their boots and they walked across my parents' living room carpet and left black boot prints across the carpet. Now, had I had been smart, I would have cut that section of carpet out and sold it. Uh, I believe it was the Dave Clark Five, but I wasn't smart in those days. So what was your impression when you did finally get to meet David? I was blown away at how much of a gentleman he was and how well-spoken he was. And our conversation, first in my parents' living room, was more about literature and David asking about what my father did for a living. My father gave him a business card. Uh, My father worked for a brewery. I think David thought that was pretty cool. And then the dinner didn't happen at my parents' house. We took David to a restaurant about five miles from my parents' house called Emerson's. And it was a steakhouse. And when we walked in, the hostess was totally taken aback. She seated us in a booth that had curtains and proceeded to close the curtains. And we got a chuckle out of that. 
So we had dinner and the conversation flowed. My parents really liked David. I believe David liked my parents. And after dinner, we dropped my parents off and David and Ron came back to my house in Tacoma Park, Maryland, which was the first city in the United States that was a nuclear free zone. It was a very hippie city. And David saw his first bong in my living room as a band I had been managing was passing it around. Uh, David did not partake. And I've seen in various books on David that he did smoke the bong, that the party was in Garrett Park, Maryland, rather than Tacoma Park, that we didn't eat dinner at Emerson's, we ate at Huffberg's Deli, etc. In my book, it's factual. Ron was very keen to get David to America so he could arrange for him to meet journalists like yourself and also music writers from the underground and alternative press at the time. How important were those magazines and papers in breaking new acts back in those days? It was extremely important because if you were, let me just take an age range, 15 to 25, you could pick up just in Washington, D.C., the Washington Free Press, the Quicksilver Times, Unicorn Times, all these underground papers, which not only were writing about the arts, they were writing about the war in Vietnam. It was a counterculture movement and music fed that counterculture movement. So if you look at the underground press, you had the free newspapers like the Washington Free Press, Unicorn Times, etc. Then the next tier up, you had the Rolling Stones and the Creams and I've got to say that from 1964 to 1967, when Ron wrote the column, he was the only journalist in the United States that was doing a weekly interview with a major, major act. The same thing happened when I took over the column in February of 67. Rolling Stone didn't exist. It existed a few months later, and it came out every two weeks, and it, it became really the Bible of, I won't say the counterculture, but of music in the United States, because they would write about underground groups, they would write about Neil Diamond, they would write about a lot of artists, and their interviews were long-form interviews. Uh, one of my favorite writers for Rolling Stone, Paul Nelson, wrote incredible interviews, um, and it might have been with Warren Zevon one, one week, and two weeks later it might have been with Clint Eastwood. So all of the arts were covered. You couldn't go anywhere without seeing someone with long hair carrying an underground newspaper or sitting on a street corner reading it. Um, it was extremely important. And I'm thankful that the Washington Star paid for my subscriptions to Rolling Stone, Billboard magazine, NME, Melody Maker, etc. There was so much free press in all the major cities that it was much easier to get a story in the Washington free press than it was to get a story in Rolling Stone. So there were a lot of avenues for people to read about and hear about new artists, artists that hadn't really hit the airwaves yet, and artists that were becoming very popular. So after the dinner and the party back at your place, where did David stay that first night? David stayed in a hotel. I don't remember which hotel he stayed in, but he left town the next day, and 
the two stops that really hit me now were in Chicago, my brother's office on East Wacker Drive, Mercury Records, unlike most labels, was headquartered in Chicago, not New York or LA. They had offices in New York, LA, but the headquarters were Chicago. So David went up to my brother's office and that's where Ron handed him several 45 RPM records and one was the legendary Stardust Cowboy. The other trip that really comes to mind was David going to New York and my brother had hired Paul Nelson as his assistant in New York and Paul took David to see the Velvet Underground. And David was totally enthralled and had no idea because David thought that Lou Reed was such a great writer and such a great singer. He had no idea that was not Lou Reed in the Velvet Underground any longer. And so as not to shatter him, when Doug, the lead singer of the Velvet Underground, came out from backstage and sat down with David, he didn't say, I'm not Lou Reed. <laughs> So during that entire conversation, David thought he was talking to Lou Reed. And it wasn't until David left that conversation when Paul Nelson filled him in on who it really was. And the other thing was that Ron had hired a guy in Los Angeles named Rodney Bingenheimer. Rodney was a total freak. I mean that in a good way. And Rodney knew everyone in Los Angeles. And Rodney took David under his wing in L.A. And, and took him around to various parties. And in fact, to one party where David sat and played guitar and sang some songs. As well as taking his acoustic guitar to play a few private parties, which he was restricted to doing because he didn't have the right performance visa, David also took his two new Mr. Fish dresses, which he was photographed in for several magazines. That look was pretty out there, even by the liberal hippie dress codes at the time. It, it was out there, and it was out there enough that David was held up in customs for a while at Dulles Airport because of that. And one of the reasons the hostess at Emerson's Restaurants closed the curtains on us was not because David, Ron, and I had long hair, but it was because of the way David was dressed. It wasn't, he wasn't wearing a dress. He was wearing a kind of a burgundy velvet uh, pants, but he had on a long, uh, almost electric, dark blue coat. It looked dress-like. It was almost floor length. It was calf length. And Ron and I were both in blue jeans. So the trip really made a huge impact on David, and he returned to the UK re-energised and excited about writing music with a whole new direction. It did. It also, I think, his realization that his support at Mercury was basically my brother. And going back to Great Britain, RCA had already made overtures. And of course, he left Mercury Records. My brother, okay, the Bowie trip to America was January of 1971, the end of January. And in April of 1971, I have a copy of the letter. My brother sent a letter to David telling him what a pleasure it was having him in the United States and that my brother was leaving Mercury Records to manage a group called Wilderness Road, who Ron had taken David to see at a club in Chicago called The Quiet Night. And he wanted to let David know that Ron's replacement would be a guy named Mike 
Gormley and David should be in touch with him and David's management should be in touch with him. Mike Gormley, by the way, went on to leave Mercury and ended up managing a group called the Bangles. My brother ended up signing the Bangles to Columbia Records when Ron was with Columbia Records. So there's this incestuous DNA thread in the music industry, at least in the United States. After David had returned to the UK, did Ron give you any indication of how successful he thought that the promo visit had been? Yes, but I'd have to throw in a caveat there. I had been up to Chicago and I was aware that Ron was going to be leaving Mercury Records. So it was kind of a, a, a mixed bag because I was intending to do a second story on David, which I did, but not until 1972. And the story wasn't based on his 71 trip to the States. Ron was really happy and Ron told me at the time when we spoke on the phone that David flipped out when he listened to the legendary Stardust Cowboy. And the affirmation of that to me came when I was writing my book and I was doing my due diligence on David and saw an article in a magazine where David is interviewed about his heroes, not the album heroes, but who his personal heroes were. And the legendary Stardust Cowboy was one of them. And in that piece, David says, and Ron Oberman, Mercury handed me this record. I, I've got to tell you, I, it moved me, it turned me, it changed my head, it did this, it did that. And I knew that, you know, some people question, did he take Stardust from Legendary Stardust Cowboy? I've never questioned that. Never questioned that. And the fact is, it wasn't until years later that David met the ledge um, as I'll call him. And I, I think I might have written you that there is a documentary that's being completed on the legendary Stardust Cowboy by Jeff Furzig, who's done some great music documentaries, and it's going to be fully animated. So they're working on the animation now. And they shot two days of it here in Columbia, Maryland at my house. So I will be a character in the film talking about David's visit. I would much rather it had been my brother talking about it but my brother was not in the, the shape at that point to talk about anything. So um, a lot of what I'm saying is through my brother's eyes and uh, several books that have come out. I've had to correct several books, um, made some corrections with Roger Griffin's book on David and with a couple of other books. But if I were to correct the movie Stardust, I would just have to set fire to it. You know, fortunately, I hate to see any artistic project fail, but this movie in its first week in the United States on screen and video on demand did under $5,000. So I think it's been relegated to the dust heap of bad films. As a music journalist who'd reviewed hundreds of albums, what did you think of the album The Man Who Sold the World at the time? You know, honestly, at the time, I didn't think that it was a great album. My opinion has changed radically since then. It was dark. It was a time in my life where I wanted more light in my life. I had been the victim of a very violent attack where four United States Marines put a monkey wrench through my skull 
Um, went through two neurosurgeries, have a steel plate in my head. And I liked things that were not quite as dark as the man who sold the world. That's changed radically. I, I put it in my top 100 LP list now. You write about that attack in your book, and it's a very interesting example of the deep divisions in America at the time, particularly with the Vietnam War protests and the clashes between those who supported military action and the so-called long-haired hippies who opposed it. There was a lot of hostility, and neither side agreed with the other at all. And you were attacked by those Marines just because they saw you as a long-haired hippie. How did the attack happen? It happened on December 8th, 1967. So I was just into my first year of writing for The Star, and I had gone to an area of Washington called Georgetown, where a lot of the nightclubs were. And I was going to be interviewing a female African-American musical group called The Cookies. Well, it was getting late. The Cookies were still on stage. I decided to bag the interview and walk back to my car. And as I was walking back to my car, which was on a side street, these four guys with what we call sidewall haircuts, so no hair on the sides and cut very short on top, which was a typical Marine haircut, but they were in civilian clothes, except one who had a pea coat on. And they stopped me to ask me directions. And as I was giving them directions, they formed a very tight circle around me, and I knew I was in trouble. And one of the guys in front of me pulled a, one, a very heavy, back at the day, it was a six and a half ounce Coca-Cola bottle, this heavy glass. And he began to swing it at my face, and I put my arm up to protect my face and the guy behind me hit me in the head with a monkey wrench and if you've seen any cowboy movies somebody gets hit in the head they pass out i didn't fall it hurt like hell i saw white light and i was bleeding profusely and when i didn't fall they broke the bottle of coke across my face and i fell and uh they took the money out of my wallet and they went through my pants and took the money out and they opened my wallet and found my draft card and said, here's your draft card, asshole, and threw the wallet back on top of me. But at the time they thought I was dead and I was playing dead. It wasn't until they ran off that I was able to get up and walk across the street to a house and knock on the door and get help. What a lot of people don't realize is at the time, if you were a juvenile delinquent, if you went to court for a juvenile crime, but you were old enough to go into the service, a judge would often say, jail or the Marine Corps. And a lot of bad guys took the Marine Corps. The Marines needed guys, needed bodies in Vietnam. These were frontline fighters. So... If you believe in karma, as I do, I feel that those guys got their just due in, in Vietnam. I hate to say that, but it's the way I feel. Another very strange time in US politics. Michael, thank you very much for your time, and good luck with your book. Thank you so much, Des. It's been a pleasure. That's Michael Oberman, and his book, Fast Forward, Play, Rewind, is a great read. An evocative rock trip back to the heady halcyon days of the 60s and 70s. Speaking of which... There are some great pieces of rock memorabilia that are part of an ever-growing archive of main man documents, including articles, 
telexes, letters and production notes, a lot of them never seen before, that we are adding to the Main Man Label website each week. A really fascinating record of a very exciting period in rock history. That's at mainmanlabel.com. And on the website, you can also check out the other episodes in the Main Man series. In the next episode, Tony DeFries provides his views on the importance of that now historic visit that David made to the US 50 years ago. I'm Des Shaw, and this is a Zinc Media MM Tech production. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.